Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. So Dave, do you read... I'm not voracious about it, but when I do find something that interests me, I tear through it like it was wet Kleenex. Wonderful. Wonderful. I think the art and ability to read is somewhat lost um, in some regards, or at least to read for enjoyment, I think, because people can read, certainly a lot of people can, but when it comes to reading for leisure, sadly, it's a little bit of a bygone thing, but... Thankfully, we're going to bridge the gap between reading for leisure and the screen today with Rick and Nick Talk Flicks in our latest episode sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Dave Brooks and Joel Hoover joining you to get into talking a little bit about books heading to the screen. And that's going to be our topic for the day today a little bit later on. And, you know, speaking of going onto the screen, obviously theaters having a real tough time. Uh, This is a good time to support your local theater, whatever it is. Uh, if you don't want to go see a movie, I myself, I'm not going to be sitting in a big auditorium with people until this is over and done, but I can still go support your theater and the snack bar is a great place to do that. Honestly, because the movie tickets, maybe a dollar of every ticket they buy goes to the theater. The rest goes back to Hollywood. But if you go to the snack bar, pretty much that's why popcorn and beverages cost a little more there because that's how a theater makes their money. So if you're going to have movie night at the house, swing by the theater. In fact, uh, CEC Theaters here at the Bemidji Theater, they've got a nice deal, big drum of popcorn. You buy it the first time, it's $20, but you go back and all through, not the rest of 2020, but also 2021, it's like three bucks to fill that thing back up and it's a good deal and help support your local theater. That's right. So keep that in mind for the Bemidji Theater as well, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. We're thrilled to have them as a sponsor of the podcast. It's a great theater to go to to check out a movie. Um, And during this pandemic time, even if you are not going to the movies, you can still support them and still be able to to offer that support that is so, so greatly needed. Now for today, we've got a couple of preambles that we want to start with. First, on a sadder note, um, the, the acting world, the movie world, lost an icon. Here over this past weekend, Sean Connery passed away at the age of 90 and already quite a bit of quite a bit of tribute that's been paid to him looking back on his career, a lot of reflection on Sean Connery's career as well. Certainly, it makes me think of the James Bond movies, but it goes well beyond that with his career with movies like The Hunt for Red October, The Man Who Would Be King, The Untouchables, um The Rock, and we're the talking Rock, about yeah. yes. So there are just a few that come to mind, but already a lot of reminiscing taking place on on Sean Connery's career. You know, actors are going to come and actors are going to go, and the air is real thin where Sean Connery was. He was at the top of the mountain. I mean, here's a guy that hasn't made a movie since 2003. I think that was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was the last movie, 2003, 2004. That was his last one. That was the, the last one. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Wow. We're almost 20 years ago, and his name has never dropped off the radar. You know, you can think of people that made their last movie, you know, 20 years ago. People just don't talk about him anymore, but when you're the Sean Connerys of the world, I mean, between Sean Connery and Eddie Van Halen, we've lost people that were at the top of the mountain. I mean, anybody and everybody would pretty much say, yeah, he's he's on the Mount Rushmore, yeah. So what a, what a loss. He really was. And even movies that weren't that good that he was in, he made them better just because he was in them. There's not one performance he ever gave that was less than Wow. I still remember one of his first major film moments was he he played a bit part in The Longest Day. He was one of the incredible list of people who appeared in that movie, the the World War II movie about the the D-Day landings. And I still remember the first time I watched it being surprised when I saw Sean Connery pop up at one point. And he was just a one of the soldiers. He was just one of the guys in there, and it was also pre-Bond. Of course, Dr. No was the the first one that hit the screen, and, and there he was in the first of what would end up being 
six official, seven if you count unofficial, uh, James Bond roles that he would be in then over the course of his career. And that was that was the one that launched it all for him right there and made him into an icon and, and launched the James Bond persona. Speaking of books becoming movies, th- that was where it all started and it all started with him. Yeah, he was... I mean, what what really can you say? You can always say something about when oh, he was really good, he was really this, you know. And I'm not want to draw a comparison here, but Roger Moore, another Bond actor, when he passed a few years ago, he was a great actor, but he was a different kind of actor. He was kind of into one corner between the Saint and Bond. That was kind of it. Sean Connery was everywhere. I don't know what his age was when he did The Untouchables. He had to be in his 60s, and he was named People's Sexiest Man of the Year. I mean, here's a guy that was older. He was grandfatherly at that point, yeah. and he was named the 1987 or 88, whatever year that was, wow. Sexiest Man of the Year. Yeah, that was around the time of, that was getting toward Last Crusade as well, right? Yeah, just before he did Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, yeah. and you know, they tried to get him to come back for the fourth Indiana Jones movie, and by that point, he was, I'm, I'm happy being retired. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. You know, and there's reports coming out even now. He was going to make another movie after League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It was a movie that didn't ultimately get made. And there's been kind of hush-hush around it, but now things are coming out that, you know, Brett Ratner was directing it. And he was so inept in just the pre-production stage that finally Connery became very aware that he was dealing with, as far as the director went, amateurs. And said, I'm done. I'm walking away. And he was working with the writers trying to get this movie made. So he didn't, you know, the, the, the way they described it, he suffered no fools. You know, he was a rougher, gruffer kind of a guy. Even just in generality, he was groomed and molded to become the James Bond. But he wasn't a suave guy. He could play one. But he was a guy that not just on screen, but in real life, he could hurt you. Yeah. You know, he was not going to, I'm not, I've, I don't have enough time for this. That's right. So Sean Connery, boy, what a what a loss! What a what an a truly iconic actor. When the Academy Awards come around, you see those montages, the flashes of the biggest faces that have ever lit up a screen. Sean Connery will be there and should be. And there's a good chance he'll be accompanied by his first line: "Bond, James Bond." Yes, more than likely. On another note, today is election day when we are recording this, so. Dave and I thought it might be kind of fun to get into some of our favorite political-related movies or election-related movies, candidate-related movies. What are some of your favorites, Dave, that come to mind? You know, there's there's fun ones. If you're talking about elections, um, there was the Kevin Costner comedy swing vote. Very unrealistic, but it was fun, and it was meant to be. You know, there was a miscount in the county. One guy didn't get his vote, and it's completely tied, so it literally comes down to this one guy who couldn't care less, Kevin Costner. And it's just a fun, don't think anything, don't bring anything into it and just take out a fun smile. It's like the movie Dave with Kevin Costner, great movie, or Kevin Klein rather, great movie. If you want to get kind of serious quasi, uh, I'm a fan of uh, Charlie Wilson's War, Tom Hanks and okay. uh, C. Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's a, it's got a good message to it too, but if you're going to go into a political movie, the one that I can't recognize, 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 I'm going to say recommend. recognize, and that's not yeah. the one, that's not the word. My vocabulary hasn't woken up yet this morning. Cannot recommend enough. From the year 2000, it's called 13 Days. Kevin Costner, uh, it's a true story about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It is fantastic. And uh, when you get actors like Bruce Greenwood and Stephen Culp that are playing iconic real-life people like John F. Kennedy, the president at the time, and his brother RFK was the attorney general at the time. But it's told through the eyes of Kevin Costner, who was a real character at that point named Ken O'Donnell, what happened behind the scenes. And this is a movie, according to anybody and everybody that was there, could very well be shown in schools. You're never going to know what JFK and RFK may have said to one another alone in the Oval Office. But So you, you hypothesize what they may have said. But people that were there, yeah. they can't. I can't say that this wouldn't have been said. You know, you don't know what was said, but it seems probable. At the very least, it moves the plot forward, but it is extremely historically accurate just how close we came to World War III and people, you know, put politics aside and just worked the problem and worked together. I cannot recommend it enough. 13 Days came out in the year 2000. Great movie. I'm going to go a few decades back with some of my favorite ones the candidate comes to mind right away. I think the candidate is still relevant today to the political sphere. It I still remember the first time watching I was like 
hey, you know what? This is kind of crazy. This is sort of how this works. This is sort of how this goes. You know, Robert Redford is this this senator, Bill McKay, son of a, a former governor in the state of California who is goaded into running on the premise that you're going to lose. He's told by these guys who are going to be running his campaign, listen. I think Peter Boyle is the is the main the main guy who encourages him to do it. I I think that might be who it was. Um who encourages him to run and he he does so on the premise of, listen, you're going to lose. You run on your platform, you do what you want. But then you watch over time and you watch his message slowly start to get diluted and he becomes he starts to get into the race, but then the message that he's trying to convey you watch it change over time. You watch him change over time. It's a satire in some ways, but it also is very oddly true of the political realm in some regards, too. So the candidate is is a good one. Plus, the the final line in the movie is iconic. I mean, an, an incredible closing line that finishes the movie out. You have to remind me. I've seen it, but it was maybe 20 years ago. What was the last line? Do you remember? Big spoiler here. So um, keep that. Well, spoilers forthcoming, just so you know. Now what do I do? (laughs) Yeah. You know, that could probably be applied to real life. In in some cases, perhaps so. Yep. Um, The Manchurian Candidate is is not necessarily maybe a quote-unquote political movie in some respects, but in others it is. Um, It's more of a thriller, which is, I think, more of the category for it. But there's a political element to it, and it... Boy, that's a that's a really good one, and for the time that it was made in, a lot of themes that that come through that one too. And then Citizen Kane is is a tremendous movie, and there's a, a massive political arm to that movie too, and the influence of the media and all of that. Another one, obviously, I mean that's a a movie that stands as one of the most iconic ones of all time. But um, those are those are a few of the the favorites that come to mind right away for me. There are some others that I could probably. That I'm that I'm thinking of that I can't think of the title readily, but there's there's good ones out there, and and it's not always just about an election or not. You know, if you if you're watching a movie or a show starring Martin Sheen, odds are good it'll be political. I mean, he's been the president twice on The West Wing. He played RFK. He uh, oh, he was the chief of staff in the movie The American President with Michael Douglas. He was a bad presidential candidate in the dead zone. I mean, he's he's, been, he's always circling the White House in some way, shape, or form. I wonder why that is. I don't does know. He just, does he just have the appearance of a president? I mean, sort for the of. West Wing, it certainly worked well. Yeah, he, he, he wasn't supposed to be the main character on that show, and all of a sudden they wrote him in. He was so popular. It was supposed to be Rob Lowe running the behind the scenes. It was supposed to be the focus, but he was so good at it because he had done it so many times already. So who knows? They did a special reunion just for the 2020 vote on HBO Plus. So get out the vote. So really, yep. Okay, yeah. I that's one that I have wanted to to get into in a movie that, I, or rather, a show that I've wanted to check out at some point. In fact, I still I still have it on my watch list. To, it's a very good it. show. You know, Aaron Sorkin did uh, movies and TV, but he was the man yep. behind it. But he left. I think it was the fourth season. He finished off the fourth season and walked away from the show. And it went on for a couple years after that. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't the same. Um, it's it's well worth checking out. I only watched it maybe two years ago, and it took me about a year to watch it. And it was a good show. I enjoyed it very much. Recommend it highly. I'm still I'm trying to figure out. There was one more movie that I had seen in the past, and I'm looking and I'm scrolling to try to figure it out. There was one more that I had watched that was politically related that uh, I think it's from the 40s. I think it might even be from either the 40s or the 50s. Are you talking Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? Go- with- well, oh, now I'm Jimmy glad Stewart. you reminded me of that. Look what I've done now. That's another one that's one of my favorites. Yeah, <laughs> what a what a great movie. I mean, maybe maybe it feels a little bit outdated now or it's like, oh, that's a little bit too innocent. But, it, I mean, it's, it's an innocent ideology great. that you hope in this day and age might even find a way back. You know, and every now and again, you look around, you will see somebody that legitimately goes in to try to make things better. Yeah. And a lot of times, I think politicians try to start that, and it doesn't take long before they're just as dirty as the rest of them. But every now and again, you do find some sort of a beacon, maybe not popular with everybody, but 
you know, they are legitimately out there trying to do what's best. They're not taking the money. And that's kind of what the Jimmy Stewart character was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And that's what was really refreshing about that movie was that, hey, even though maybe this is a bit in the past, you know, like late 1930s when that movie was made, it is a really, there is that uplifting feeling to it of, you know, not everybody being slimy or corrupt and that he's fighting against that and working against that. And turning cynics into into people who have a little bit of a heart then again i found the movie that i was thinking of but i'm glad you brought mr smith goes to washington to mind because that is a favorite of mine that is a good one all the king's men have you ever seen that one yeah all the king's men um broderick crawford in that one that one by the way is based on a novel there there you go fits with the theme too all the king's men in 1949 and a really, really excellent movie um, about a, a corrupt governor and just the the seethe, the seething influence that he has on the people around him. It's good. It's it's dark as well when you've got those kinds of themes, but um, the political themes that are there. So that's another one, and that makes me think that of all the presidents, yeah, man, I was just which about is to say. which is its own. Uh, Watergate to step into history as well on a political sphere. So. I, I'm willing to bet you they keep making more. You know, and HBO's done special movies too. After you know everything that's been going on in this climate right now, maybe a few years when things settle down, you're going to be seeing movies about what are current events today. All right, let's talk books into movies, novels changing into movies, adapted screenplays. Yeah, all the of book the above. was better. Hmm? The book was better. Oh, that's isn't that just the common phrase? Really? Sometimes yes, sometimes absolutely no. No, that's right. Yep. It is amazing though how wide that spectrum is, Dave. That's that's a that is such a wide spectrum with with books and movies. Sometimes it feels like the movie should have captured the feeling of the book. Other times Hey, you know what? The fact that the movie was a, a separately divulging path as the book, that was a good thing, and yet you appreciate both. Or sometimes one got it right, one didn't get it right. There's there's a lot of degrees to this, isn't there? You know, you can go the route of, say, Bond. Let's, let's stick with Bruce Willis for a second, shall we? You can go the route Bruce of Bond. Bruce Willis. Well, here, follow me out now. You go to the movie version of The Bonfire of the Vanities. came out in early 90s. The book was a New York Times bestseller. It was real popular, so they rushed a movie into production. It went through what they call in Hollywood production hell. It took forever, and everything kept trying to stop it. It was a horrible movie. It just did not work. And then you take some random book that you know is almost unheard of by a guy, a guy named Roderick Thorpe, and they rework it and turn it into Die Hard. Nobody remembers the movie. Yeah, Die Hard is based loosely on a book. And the book is very different from what the movie is. And the book came out, I think, in the 60s. And Die Hard came out in the late 80s, and it's completely different. But it's you could see the nuggets of you know what carried over. And no one knows about that book. I think it's, it's No One Lives Forever, I think, was the name of the book. And uh, the movie just lives on forever. And You don't know the book. You yeah. would never know that that was the source material yeah. for it. You'd be amazed on movies that are out there that are based on books. Some are pretty obvious, yeah. Da Vinci Code and so forth, and others... Really? That was a book? I never heard of that. You know? So it's interesting. A very, very rare is the case, you think, that somebody sat down to write a movie from scratch, and that's what happened. It's usually based on something, to some degree, very rarely is it completely original. And so the ones that do it well and the ones that don't do it so well, let's uh, let's open the chapter on this, shall we? That's why there, when hoof? it comes to award season... The phrase adapted screenplay yeah. comes into the picture where you you have that essential category that, that comes up when they're handing out awards. And you, you start to learn then a little bit about where some of these these stories come from that make it onto the screen then. And a general a general thought on books and movies is this that movies put it into a canvas where you can see what's going on. But it's a flat canvas. When it comes to a book, the the thing about books that makes them so unique is you are able to go into a multidimensional sense with the way that you are able to take the words and put it into your mind. You are creating the picture. You are creating what things look like. You get some description of the characters, but you are getting to picture them in your mind as you see them. You are picturing the setting in your mind as it gets described. And as you fill out the details, 
You are also stepping into the minds of the characters a lot as well. There, there's a ton of that that goes on that on the screen, you're merely seeing. You're more often than not getting the thoughts, unless it's like Leonard Shelby talking to you in Memento or something like that. You are getting these things that are getting laid out to you in much greater detail for your mind within a book. And then in a movie, you're seeing a lot of this playing out, and you need details filled in then around it. Well, even more so, if you're reading the book and you're painting in the pictures and filling in the gaps, when you're watching a movie, you're seeing those filled in and gapped by the person who, or the crew that's putting it together, usually the director, and they'll really have the, the final look on things. They give you their perspective on it. And some of them, you know, some of the, there's great directors for a reason and others, they direct a movie or two and they're done for a reason. So it, and it's a collaborative process in a lot of ways. So it's, it presents a version while you read a book and depending on maybe where your mindset is at the time, your the gaps that you fill in might be different if you read that book again down the road than it was the first time. A movie is a movie is a movie. It's always going to be the same. It is also interesting how involved or not involved the original writers sometimes are or sometimes aren't when it comes to making the movie. For instance, Stephen King famously was not a fan of Stanley Kubrick's impression of The Shining. He just didn't think that it it worked. He didn't like it as far as the way that it translated the book into the movie, and yet many people regard that as an instance where book and movie, even though they may have been different entities in the way they came off, both worked in their senses. That's how a lot of people feel about about them. I mean, you as a viewer and you as a reader, you can have your opinions of the movie and the book. But there's one instance where the writer maybe had a little bit of say, but in the end, the director said, I'm going full steam ahead. I'm doing it this way. But in other cases, whether it's as an executive producer or maybe as a script writer, the writer of the book sometimes can be very involved with the movie. Well, let's stick with Kubrick here for a moment. Let's go to 2001. The book was written by a guy named Arthur C. Clarke, and the movie came out very shortly afterward. Yes. And very much so, Kubrick and Clark collaborated together. Clark they did. helped form some of what would become the movie, and Kubrick helped form some of what would become the book. And it's a very rare example. I mean, usually you make a movie and there'll be a novelization of it based on an early script, but truly the book and the movie. I mean, Clark was the spearhead on the book, not so much the movie, and the opposite with Kubrick on the movie, not so much the book, but they worked together on this. And where you talked about Kubrick with The Shining, you know, he didn't like Kubrick's version, or, or, or Stephen King didn't like Kubrick's version of The Shining, but when he later wrote the sequel, Dr. Sleep, he didn't base the book, Dr. Sleep, off the book, The Shining. He really based it off of the movie, much yeah. more than anything else. Isn't and that interesting? Yeah. I think he, he realized, while there's fans for the book, most people know the movie. So if you, prov- if you provide, I think he wrote that book in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, something like that. People know the movie more than the book. It just is. So if you go read the sequel to The Shining and it's not resembling the movie, wait, well, huh? Well, no, this is the sequel to the book, not the movie. And then even the movie version of Dr. Sleep, which I just watched this past Halloween, uh, is very, very different. The Overlook Hotel is burned down in the book. But in the movie, it plays a very, it's the setting for the third act, for the final act of the show. And it was very well done. So it can they vary? Yes. And this leads us to maybe one of the biggest questions with books being turned into movies. How faithful should they be to the book when they make the movie? If they go off in their own direction, is it bad? Or is it only bad if the movie is bad? If they go off on their own and the movie's really good, is that a forgivable quote-unquote sin? Maybe there's a debate to be had here. I think that's a great question, Dave, because there are a lot of examples of both really, where adhering to the source material was good, or there are cases where not adhering to it was good, and there are cases where, hey, maybe you shouldn't have stuck to the source material so much. It just didn't work in a, in a movie sense. Or, hey, why did you venture so far away from the book? The, the essence of the book is lost here. I think some of that is very subjective, but there are, some to- there are a lot of cases where, like you said earlier, how well the movie is made, 
how, how poorly it's made, that plays a very big factor. Here's a good example of where diverging away from source material can create another entity that works very well. And that's what you get when when you have the Bourne movies. So the Bourne identity is... By the way, we should probably quickly segue here. We've mentioned it before. There will be spoilers forthcoming from here on out, whether you're reading these books or you're going to watch these movies. We are going to talk about some elements that might just give things away. So be forewarned. You might want to be ready with the pause button. Expect spoilers ahead. And with that, Hoove, yeah, back to, we, back to uh, the Bourne. It is funny that you say that because we are also getting into spoilers for books, too. But the Bourne movies, they uh, they were based off of books written by Robert Ludlum. And there are many of them. Many, many Jason Bourne books. The movies, then, the Bourne identity is, from all accounts, I have not gotten to read the book to this point, by all accounts, it kind of stays in the realm of the book. Kind of. But it starts to drift a little bit from that. By the time you get to the Born Supremacy and the Born Ultimatum, you're looking at entirely different stories from the Born books, Supremacy and Ultimatum. You're you're going into a completely different realm by that point. Kind of similar to what we found with the James Bond books and movies. Ian Fleming, Sir Ian Fleming, the writer of the books. I actually have a couple of the books. I've I've read some of the Bond books, and I'd like to read a few more of them too. Um, classic reads, really, really classic reads. Um, I have uh, Casino Royale and On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and I, I think those are the only two I've read to this point. But I, I've got a couple more I would like to get into. And those, um, pretty much the movie versions, the official movie versions anyway of Casino Royale, really kind of follow the book for the most part. And others, they kind of cherry pick. Maybe they take the title, and the completely different story. Yeah, the the book to movie connection with Casino Royale fairly close. Pretty close. Fairly close. Yeah, they they changed up a few things, but there's they as far as themes thematically very close and even some lines, very specific line, the last line in the book which is just an eviscerating line. She's dead more or less. More or less also in the movie. Yep. Um, so there's there's a couple of examples where you you might you might hold closer to to source material. I think it, it that's where having the collaboration of the writer is so interesting because sometimes they go, you know what, this would work pretty well in in a movie sense, but other times it's not. Nah, you know what, you do need to change this up because this just won't translate quite as well for a movie. So. I think ultimately it has to come down to what kind of idea do you have and how well does it translate to the screen? And can you sometimes condense your massive source material in a way that suits for good pacing in a movie sense? I think exactly what you just said. Uh, We'll start with Jaws. Jaws, 1975, Steven Spielberg, great movie. We've talked about it before, and it's based on a book by Peter Bencher that came out just a few years before that. And uh, Peter Benchley actually had a part, a small part, as a TV reporter in the movie Jaws. But there's differences. If you read the book and see the movie, for one, uh, Richard Dreyfuss' character, Matt Hooper, and the chief's wife have an affair in the book, not in the movie. There's a mafia story in the background that one of the reasons they need to keep the beaches open is because they need to get money to the town, not just for the town, but to feed back to their mafia investors. That's not in the book anywhere. You know, Quint's character gets chewed up by the shark and eaten. In the movie, his foot gets tangled in a harpoon rope and he gets pulled down. The shark gets blown up in the movie, you know, with the air tank in his mouth. In the movie, he's been stabbed, he's been shot, and the, and the shark just finally, anticlimactically, just in the dies book. and yeah. goes down and that's it. It just, it, it wasn't the same. And so when Spielberg started to make changes, Bench was like, no, you can't blow the shark up. No, you can't. Benchley got thrown off the set of the movie. You know, he's got a cameo that's still in the movie, but he did not like the direction it was going. And even to the point we've mentioned it before, he regrets even writing the book in the first place because of how it quote unquote demonized sharks in general. And he's not wrong, but he's, but yeah, so he was enjoying his success, didn't like the way it was going into the movie, and then realized how the book and the movie had combined to really create an overall fear of sharks and kind of almost disowned a lot of it. So now when you see Peter Benchley, he's usually on the Discovery Channel trying to bring these gentle giants, as he calls them, you know, into a different light. And he's not right, he's not wrong, but I, you can see where he's coming from. You know, I, I don't think I want to go swimming around with great white sharks without a big 
cage of iron bars between me and the shark. It's not that it's going to get me, but it very well could. If anything, there's a fascination that's been created, absolutely though, too, in general. But I don't know what what are you expecting when you go into it? You would think that maybe he would know somewhat going into it what might come from it. But yeah, that's a that's a sidecar conversation. Yeah, you know, and Jaws, interestingly enough, is based on a true story. Also, right around World War One, I. I won't get too into it, but uh, there were several shark attacks off the New Jersey coast, which is briefly mentioned in the movie, actually. But that was a true story. And was it one shark? Was it several sharks? And some of them were even inland, like uh, up a river. Some sharks, like bull sharks, can do that. Um, but there's still mysteries as to exactly what happened. But that happened around World War One, and Jaws loosely is based off of that story. Kind of interesting. But it, it helps to either have the collaboration of the writer to be able to make it translate well onto the screen, and they would then be able to go, hopefully, they, the, hopefully the writer would have enough wherewithal to know all right, I, I think this would work pretty well if we would try to really translate this closer to the screen, or no, if you want to put this on screen, we're going to have to make some big changes, or get yourself a screenwriter who would be able to skillfully do that. A prime example that came to mind when I when we were getting ready for this episode today was Aaron Sorkin writing for The Social Network, mm-hmm. because that's based off a book. It's called The Accidental Billionaires. It was written during the 2000s. And it was from that that the idea for The Social Network then was created, which became just a, a monumental movie, I mean, even 10 years ago. And now, today, it looks perhaps even more predictive than, than we ever could have thought, You know, not only as it was looking back, but also for the influence of social media and all that's come with Facebook since. But having a screenwriter like Aaron Sorkin, who was able to kind of bridge between their source material and let's put this on the screen that was able to then to then piece those two together to be able to make that work. So it does help to, whether it's with the writer or with somebody else, to find a way to be able to make it work for the screen. Because we keep bringing that up. Books just sometimes don't translate onto the big screen quite as well as you think they would. Think of The Tower from a couple of years ago, trying to adapt the Dark Tower. Oh, the Dark Tower. Yeah, the Dark Tower, the Stephen King novel that people thought was going to be just this outrageously good movie. They they thought, hey, if they can get this right, this is going to be a phenomenal movie. Well, they didn't get it right. They In the end, it ended up being a bomb with, with how it did, not only critically but also financially at the box office. It ended up being a bomb. Sometimes, with, with something like Dark Tower, there are concepts that are just very hard to take from book and put onto screen. It, sometimes the two just don't add up quite as well, or there's fear that they won't add up. I want to get into that in a moment. There's issues sometimes with books where they're considered to be unfilmable, quote-unquote. Yes. It's a very nonlinear story, and that's not to say that movies have to be linear. I mean, think about you know Christopher Nolan's Memento. Think about almost any... Uh, Quentin Tarantino movie. They're very nonlinear, you know. But the way that it worked with Stephen King's The Dark Tower, you really had to come up with a storyline and a way to show it on screen to make it come together. And obviously the proof is in the pudding and it didn't work. But Stephen King as an author has been very, for the most part, supportive of his works being made into film. You have to buy the rights for the book in order to make it into a movie. Stephen King famously sells his books for $1 for the rights to make him into a movie. He's just doing it to do it, you know, and sometimes he's not very hands-on at all, like Stanley Kubrick doing The Shining. He didn't like the way that it went. Other times he's a little more hands-on. One of his movies he directed himself, which is not a great movie, but it's not a bad movie, called Maximum Overdrive with Emilio Estevez. came out in like 85, 86, I think, where some extraterrestrial force is turning machines into sentient beings you know it's it's out there and it's kooky and it's it's its own thing but he directed it and at the time he was going through a cocaine binge and he said the movie's probably a result of that binge but he's either slightly involved in the making of the films or not involved at all just here's my book go and he's done mixed results but now they've been so popular and most of them have been made that they're starting to redo them they've started with pet cemetery a few years ago and there's yes. talk of others it of course is another one that's just been going through the remakes and yes. everything else probably i'd like to see a better version of silver bullet with a better looking werewolf would be good too just don't touch shawshank 
Yeah, leave There's Shawshank no alone. Need. That's Stephen King too, believe it yep. or not. Yeah. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater as Dave and I continue to talk about books being translated to the screen. One of the most famous examples I think of this is not filmable. I think of an episode of The Simpsons when I think of this. So it's an episode where they're going back to the 90s in the episode, which is ironic because The Simpsons started in the late 80s and into the early 90s is when it really took off. They do an episode where they go back to the 90s, going back to to a time in, in Homer and Marge's history together. And... Marge is taking college camp uh, college classes and she's walking around on campus and there's a younger version of comic book guy holding court <laughs> with a couple of other characters around him and he's explaining something to them and he goes and that is why the Lord of the Rings will never be made into a film. I mean people thought I think that the Lord of the Rings was unfilmable. They thought that that was one of those where nope can't happen it had been done before peter jackson did it it was just on a much smaller level and it was less successful animated because of that yes and yeah smaller scale animated but people were like can this actually be done can this really be done with all of this material well peter jackson and company they pulled it off now with the hobbit they were less successful that's what happens when you try to take uh, one children's book as well as surrounding details and make it into three movies. That's not a great idea. Well, I think what you ran into was you get the Lord of the Rings. You had Peter Jackson and company. They were really interested in making it happen. At this point, it was a huge budget, but if they let it work, it would pay off. There was minimal studio interference and it worked. Well, wow, look at what that could. Let's, we got The Hobbit. There's only one book, though. Yeah, but we're going to make three. It became a money grab. They let these guys, you know, now you start running into studio interference and people looking at dollar signs rather than the product. Let's turn one book into three movies because that's three times the ticket sales. And it showed because it was A, extremely watered down and really not that good. And B, it just it wasn't anything box office wise like what Lord of the Rings was. Not to mention the CGI felt like it was stuck in 10 years prior when they had made the original three movies. Yeah, the mo- the day that they said that they were going to make The Hobbit into three movies, I cringed. I was like, I oh, did too. no, this is not good. But The Lord of the Rings, they pulled it off with those massive books full of material. They pulled it off, and it was extremely successful the way that they did that. Same thing, I think, would apply with the Harry Potter movies. How in the world could you make movies out of each of those gargantuan books that had been written out by J.K. Rowling. How were you going to make those into movies? It got pulled off with each one of them. A it book worked. empire became a movie empire. Yeah, it did. It did. And the books, I, I still remember when they would come out, that was that was like Christmas Day for people all over the world when one of those books would come out. It was just in, an enormous uh, occasion. And then they were able to they were still able to take those massive books and they streamlined them very well into these movies that that came, like these two-and-a-half to three-hour movies. They still pulled it off. They kept the band together with the core characters who made it all work. Um, they made superstars out of them, too. And it, it just worked, which those two examples are pretty incredible ones of a monumental undertaking of taking source material and making into a movie. An example, I think, to the contrary has been the Chronicles of Narnia. Those are much beloved books. I've read through all of them. They are they are just phenomenal books, and they're tremendous to go through. C.S. Lewis, I, I love his writing. Um, but those have been difficult to translate into making into movies. Just for whatever reason, those haven't quite translated as well. Um, same goes for like you know Artemis Fowl just had a a woeful attempt to translate their their book efforts into a TV show, I think, was what they did with it. I believe that was a show that they just recently had come I out. I want to say it was a movie, but I think it or got... Or was it a movie? I think it got impacted, one of the earlier movies to be impacted by the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, and it didn't... But I, from what I heard was just did not work. Like, it was a, a, a fouled effort to be able uh, to get that one. I see what you did there, yeah. yeah. thank you. Um, to get that one to work out and to, to be able to translate what they were trying to do with that. When you are delving into fantasy books, you you run 
you run a lot of risk. There's a lot to to factor into it. Sometimes it works with Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. Sometimes it, like Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, they they've had some pretty good movies. I, I thought the Disney effort to to put Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe on screen was pretty good. Prince Caspian was all right. Voyage of the Dawn Treader was all right. But they haven't gotten through all the the books, which is kind of the point that I was making there. Is with some of them harder to do than others. Like Nar, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's been done, I think, a couple times now, and they've done it pretty well. But getting through all of them has been the challenge. Artemis Fowl, a challenge. Um, Aragon. Aragon, infamously, that didn't work. I mean, that was an enormous book that, that was written out there and its its sequels. And then the movie just didn't work translating it on. I mean, just just ask those who put Game of Thrones together, working off of that that material. Fantasy source material presents a lot of opportunity, but a lot of hurdles when it comes to going from book to screen. There are some we'll call them tailors that work in movies that write the movies before they happen. And if you're going to adapt it from a material source already, uh, let's get into, uh, let's get into Tom Clancy. We kind of touched base with Sean Connery early in the movie when they did the movie, um, the hunt for red October. If you look at any Jack Ryan book written by Tom Clancy, they look like the phone book. They're huge. I mean, yes. they're huge. Tom you had Clancy, a great description for the way Tom Clancy writes, too. You know, I've, I've tried to read The Hunt for Red October, and I got, I don't know, maybe a quarter of the way through, and I was like, I can't read this. I saw the movie, loved the movie. This, he says in about 40 pages what you could say in two. And he tells you what the, what the character's thinking, which is great, but the nuances and the thing that happened 40 years ago that influenced him forever, and he'll spend four chapters on that, and that influenced his decision that now he's going to make here in the present, and blah, 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 blah. It just, it's all over the place, but I mean, it's a good story when you get through it, but it takes forever. So what do you have? You need a screenwriter that can take the essence of, let's just stick with Hunt for Red October, and boil it down. What is its essence? Let's get this out in a two-hour movie so that some of the fluff and the you know the nuance is gone. But if you look at the character's face, maybe you can interpret what you know Alec Baldwin's version of Jack Ryan is thinking as he's trying to figure out whether the Soviet captain, you know, Sean Connery, is going to attack the U.S. or he's trying to escape the Soviet Union and defect with this World War III starting ship, you know. They boiled it down, and the movie is fantastic. Now, I know people that had read the books, and they thought the books were fabulous. Yeah, but they left out this thing, and this doesn't matter. You don't need a three-hour movie. You need a two-hour movie. Give me a two-hour story. Did he succeed? Well, yeah, but yeah, but I don't need to sit in the chair reading this book for a month, which is what it would take <laughs> to get all the nuance. If you like this movie, read the book for so much more. Clear and present nuance. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so they're still trying to move forward with Jack Ryan. They're not so much trying to adapt the book. And some of those books are unfilmable for other reasons. You know, in one of them, and I might be getting this, the book wrong, I think is a Cardinal of the Kremlin, where the passenger jet crashes into the U.S. Capitol. And this was written before 9-11. Well, now things like that have happened, you know, in the 9-11 attacks. I don't think you could film a movie where a passenger jet gets hijacked and flown into the Capitol building during the State of the Union address so that pretty much everybody is killed except for the designated survivor. Granted, they've made a show of that with Kiefer Sutherland, but they well, don't really show. I also think of Olympus Has Fallen. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, it's unfilmable almost for that reason. And so the Jack Ryan character, as you go through the books, rises from CIA analyst to eventually president of the United States. But they keep doing all this background stuff, so you've got reboots of the character. Now you've got John Krasinski doing the, the version on Amazon+. Plus. You've already yeah. had the Chris Pine uh, shadow recruit version, not to mention the Harrison Ford and the Ben Affleck versions of Jack Ryan. They've had more or less success, but they've all been good to a point. You know, Maybe some favored more than others. And I do think Hunt for an October is, is just a darn good movie. It They've really had is. to make them sleeker. Yes. That's been, I think, the word that sticks out. They had to make it sleeker to be able to fit TV, to fit movies. Although, I think TV shows, the TV show idea for Jack Ryan and, and for those books is a good one because you can flesh things out a little bit more, too. And that's where... TV be, is able to help a little bit. Like Game of Thrones, that is a wide-open canvas to be able to t take George R.R. R. Martin's source material and be able to just spread it out over the course of show episodes that feel like movies 
in some respects. And really, in the last season, they were essentially each their own movie. Um, although they were outside of the source material by that point, and they were having to set sail on their own, which, for better or for worse, was where they were. But TV shows kind of help with that a little bit, especially if there is thicker source material, if there is more nuance. You can flesh that out a little bit more, which is where some script writers have gone, is this doesn't suit for a movie. Let's take this into the realm of TV and broaden the canvas. Yeah, you, you've definitely seen that over the last, call it 10 years, where the shift of where the entertainment is, where the big name actors are. There was, a, for a long time, I'm a movie film star versus a TV film star. You know, Leah Thompson, who was in Back to the Future, did an interview once where it kind of stuck with me in a good way when she was being signed up to do play the part of the mom in Back to the Future. Well, who's going to be Marty? Well, after Eric Stoltz incident happened, in comes Michael J. Fox. Well, he's just a TV star. Well, he was going to become a lot more than that. But now it's kind of gone the other way. You know, TV shows, not all of them, but many of them are really layered and in-depth and cool and neat. And the movies almost seem to be the popcorn throwaways. And now all you're really getting on, on the big screen, when there, is, when there are movies on the big screen, tend to be much more tentpole movies. And some of the movies that I like that have come out over time that are just interesting stories, their odds are they're not really making those, at least not for the big screen anymore. They're going to go direct to some sort of a streaming service. You know, and that's, I don't know if I love that. I don't hate it, but I'm not sure, you know, if that's all it is is tent poles at the movie theaters, there aren't enough tent poles to make that model survive. Well, thankfully, we've got some recent examples to the contrary. I mean, Greta Gerwig's version yep. of Little Women was a massive hit of, of among people who read the book. I mean, they, they just loved what she did with the movie, and that was was one that translated well. A good example, and maybe a needed example, with a classic piece of literature that this can still work. It can still work to take a piece of literature like that and be able to fit this on the screen. I mean, people have have tried in many respects to take the the writings of Jane Austen and put them onto the screen in in various ways. And sometimes you need almost a mini series to pull those off. Look at look at the Anne of Green Gables books and and the way that those have maybe in their best formats been the the Canadian television miniseries kind of setup that they've done there are like these three and a half hour long quote unquote shows that you put together them with almost like a with a, a feature film that's a little bit more than just a feature film but made for television like sometimes those are the creative avenues that have to be gone through to be able to take massive source material and if you want to try to adhere to it especially in a drama sense to be able to to take that and put it onto the screen in the proper way. The dramas, it feels like, sometimes need that extra bit of space to be able to flesh them out. If it's more of an action-related one, if it's a fantasy-related one, there's where you can use the visual of the screen to be able to maybe go a different direction or maybe even a significantly different direction, but it could still work. With the dramas, though, their essence is in dialogue. Their essence is in character interaction. Sometimes you need a little bit more room to flush that out. You know, I think one of the things that you do see happen over and over and over, when you have a good adaptation, generally, and there's, I say generally, not always, but generally the rule is, with several exceptions, you have a person or a group that are spearheading this, and they are of a very similar unified vision, and they're moving forward. This is the scope that we're going to do. When you see something very successful on the page generally blow up on the big screen and not in a good way, I mean, it just sinks and burns. Think of John Carter, for example. Oh, it's a man. great series of yep. children's books. Tell me this movie wasn't A, paint by numbers, and B, production by committee. I mean, you could tell there's fingerprints from everywhere to the point where they didn't name the movie after any of the stories. They just named it after the character. Imagine if every Jack Ryan movie, which we talked about, Hunt for Red October, was called Jack Ryan, colon, The Hunt for Red October. You know, just make it a movie. You know, the Bond movies don't all have 007 as the main title, colon, Casino Royale or GoldenEye or whatever. They're all individual. We're intelligent enough to be able to understand who Bond is back in a whole titled movie that doesn't have anything to do with anything else. Yes. It's, it's very much spearheaded by a, a small group. The Broccoli family right now and the Saltzmans earlier, they forwarded it along. Ian Fleming's books were inspirational, 
but they certainly were not the source necessarily to the point where in many cases live and let die is the night is the title of a book but the movie really doesn't follow the book at all not really you know it just gets some a couple of ideas and it cherry picks some things and there are several books and short stories for bond that have been written that have never made any way shape or form to the big screen really at all you know so they they might still pick from those materials and move forward but when you have a group that is the hunger games was another one that came to mind too yeah but you had a group that were determined and they spearheaded this thing and they made it happen the harry potter movies the same thing you have a huge amount of source material and a lot of that juice didn't get squeezed out of the book they just you can only squeeze so much but when you have a committee oh but i love that scene you got to put it in the movie well who says that some random executive that you know starts stirring the pot and they shouldn't you know there comes a point where, not to say that every time that this has happened and a person or a group has spearheaded a movie and it didn't work out very well, sometimes you need a little oversight, but it can't be committee. Maybe you assign someone that knows how to write a story. I want you to oversee this story and help it and make sure that it's not going down the sewer either. That's happened and that's worked. But when you get generally a group that has an idea or maybe it's a story that, well, okay, go ahead. Who thought Game of Thrones was going to be some major, huge thing that it turned out to be? HBO took a gamble on a show that had a pilot episode that looked pretty good, but the showrunners really made that show happen, and they were generally left alone. Martin stayed away from things. HBO generally stayed away from things. Even as the show got popular, they just, you guys do your thing. And unfortunately, they got tempted by Star Wars, which ultimately they walked away from, and they rushed through the end of it, and they screwed up the end game. And, you know, so Game of Thrones is going to be tempted, is going to be tainted forever yes. because of that. Because of, call it outside interference, influence. They were trying to get away from Game of Thrones so they could go to the next thing, which ultimately they didn't do in the long run anyway. So they got away from a show and wrecked it in the process to go somewhere they didn't go in the first place. And like I alluded to earlier, they started to venture into new territory that hadn't been written yet. They didn't have the source material to work off of. It became their own work, their own doing, and that also had a role to play as well. You know the Hunger Games. That's that's a good recent example of what it be what was has been over the last decade a a big phenomenon. Young adult novels that have gone onto the screen and really taken off. Hunger Games launched for a time a real push into young adult novels and getting them on onto the larger canvas. And the Hunger Games had enormous success with that. I mean, I think Harry Potter perhaps in some ways kind of helped fuel that too in its own way even though it was a different genre but still the idea that young adult novels could be turned around and made into some very successful movies then the hunger games ran with that template and on its own was highly profitable and highly successful as well capitalizing on the stars that they had involved too and it then spurred other oppor- other opportunities for other ones to get in there. The Divergent series, the Maze Runner. But those then, I think, kind of hit a wall. There was a certain point, only after a couple of years, where the initial boom that had come with having the initial Hunger Games movies, it almost was like there was a wall that was hit where it was like, okay, we, we've had enough of these. Maze Runner then kind of dropped off with a, a very nondescript ending. They didn't even finish the Divergent series, I don't think. They didn't fully get to the end with that one. They were going to try to do it in, in a, um, I think, an online-only kind of release format there or made-for-TV kind of format. Um, I, I, yeah, it was going to be a digital release, I think, that they were talking about doing, but never came together, even though I think the stars really wanted to try to make that happen. But... They hit a wall eventually where the interest that had been there for a couple of years suddenly stopped up as they wanted to get it turned around really quick and capitalize off the work of the books and the success of the books. But by that point, the interest had kind of waned. Well, and there's a lot to be said about this here. Let me give you a comparison. Star Wars comes out in 1977 and it changes everything. Now all of a sudden, sci-fi, which had been kind of out of fashion for a long time at that point, Every production studio, what do we have on the shelves? It might. So now you start seeing the return of other properties. Battlestar Galactica comes out. Star Trek gets the jump to the big screen. So on and so forth. Now you've got a young adult novel like the Harry Potter series that just nobody saw that kind of thing. Well, I can't say nobody saw that coming because when they <laughs> announced that they were going to start making them, everybody was... <gasps> so now that worked and it was done well and it made buckets of money. 
Same exact thing. Hey, what do we have on the shelf? What rights can we buy that we can get? So why are we making these other young adult movies? Is it because, well, young adults, they need to have a chance to go to the theater too and explore their own adventures or buckets of money look appealing to me too. What do we have that can maybe dip into that money well? So you get things like the the Chronicles of Narnia. They didn't really finish it. Well, why didn't they finish it? Because they kind of petered off as far as how people were anticipating them, how the box office return got, and after, did they do anything after Don Treader at all, or was that the third and last one that they did, even though there's more books? That was the last one they did, although Netflix apparently has picked them up, and they're going to do their own versions all of right. them coming soon. You know, the, the you know, Hunger Games worked, but maybe they flooded the market also with all this young adult stuff. You know, that happened with a whole bunch of stuff, yeah. not just movies, video games. There was the big video game crash in 83, because everything was being made into a video game, E.T., great movie, worst video game of all time. It almost single-handedly crashed the market. When you do that with things, whether it's a genre, whether it's young adults, and you don't do it very well, and you're just throwing them out there to get them done, and you get this paint-by-committee like John Carter, and that, you know, I think the boat was already taking on water by that point, but that certainly, I think, largely had a lot to do with sinking it. At some point, it's too much. If if, if Rowling decided she was going to do more Harry Potter books and they were going to be made into movies... I don't think you could guarantee that lightning is going to happen again. I think you had that lineage. It came to its end. It was, for lack of a better term, maybe not perfect, but pretty darn good. It was its thing. Let it go. We'd be remiss if we didn't at least mention it, although we've talked about it in previous episodes. We haven't even gotten into comic books, Dave. No. and I mean, that's its own But that's entity. not books, really. No, Those are comic books. It's not quite yeah. the same. What about graphic novels, oh, though, yeah. too? Like, think of Scott Pilgrim versus the world. That's based off a series of, is it graphic novels? I, I think, think it's comic book. I think or, it's kind of it's almost both. Or in, in the a comic way. book realm. Yeah, but what I love about that one is that they literally take, it's like you're reading a comic book and yeah. watching a comic book on the screen. You and almost you're need it play out, and it worked brilliantly. I mean, it's just a marvelous creation of a film. I just want to say right now, I do not condone drug use, but if you were to uh, be on something and watch Scott Pilgrim oh versus word. the world, you might just OD just because of <laughs> what it's going to do to you. I mean, that uh, is such a vibrant, colorful, kinetic movie. If you were on something watching that movie, that might just be it. Might as well call 911 now. I highly recommend not being on any sort of substance and watching that movie. It grief. would just be too much. <laughs> Yeah. Don't do drugs. No. Quote the mom not. from Almost Famous. Yeah. But that's there's an, another example where you know what in some ways they're they're kind of adhering to the source material plus they took the reason I thought of it was when you brought up John Carter and you said that John Carter is a splicing together of many different stories into one movie. Scott Pilgrim versus the World is the same thing. Yeah. It's it is a splicing together of several different graphic novels, comic books, whichever you whatever you prefer for it. It's a splicing together of several stories into one and it works brilliantly. And that's maybe not a bad way to go. I love these series of books. Do you think we can pull off all five of them or whatever it is? I don't know. This is so different. Let's go for one. Well let's cherry pick some good elements and let's come up with a storyline that'll work for one. Maybe we could do a sequel and take more elements, but let's just do the one. Let's get the one war the one part of this world out there. And maybe there's life for more or not, but if there isn't, at least we've got one good one out there. And that might be a good way to go. Let's make Hunt for an October. What if we don't follow it up with another one? Well, let's make a good movie. I think a good note to finish this episode on is, is this, and especially for those people who will either turn their nose up at the novel version or turn their nose up at the, the movie version because... They, they don't totally jive with each other. I think you've got to learn to be able to appreciate each entity on its own and not maybe tie them too closely together all the time. Like reading Casino Royale or reading On Her Majesty's Secret Service and then watching the movie after reading the book is enjoyable for me because they have the same title, they might have some of the same elements, but they are different. At their core, they are different in some respects. And what I've enjoyed is being able to appreciate each one in its own manner. And sometimes that's part of the fun is, hey, crack the book open and read the book and enjoy it on its own merits. 
watch the movie and enjoy it on its own merits. Maybe one got it got it right better than the other or was more well-crafted than the other, but you get two different stories out of it sometimes and there's some enjoyment in that. Maybe it maybe it's a little bit different and maybe that that rankles people and bothers people in some ways and I totally understand that. But maybe there's something to be enjoyed about each one being a slightly different entity. I think it's kind of like the Northwoods. You know, a lot of people go to the Northwoods to get away from it all. And a lot of people go to the Northwoods to get away from it all while bringing it all with them. So now you've got all the comfortless of the city being dragged further and further into the woods and close to the Boundary Waters, which is, for those of you that are not in Minnesota, is a great spot up in far northeastern Minnesota that's getting more and more encroached on. Um, I think it's the same kind of thing with books. It's either one or it's the other, and very few people can enjoy both. You know, it's I saw the book. I read the book Jurassic Park before I saw the movie because uh, I wasn't going to be able to see the movie for like a couple weeks, and I really, really wanted to see the movie. So I got the book, and I was reading the book, and I liked the book a lot. Saw the movie, liked the movie a lot. But I can enjoy both on their own elements and see the differences of them um, versus it has to be one way or the other. Go watch both versions of Superman 2 for an example. Well, no, it can't be like that. It has to be like this. No, it doesn't have to be. It has to be entertaining. So when you talk about making a book into a movie, does it have to follow the book? Well, to an extent, yes. If, if you made uh, The General's Daughter into a movie and it had nothing to do with the military at all, well, wait wait a minute. What? Ha- what? It, you you got to stick to a degree. And then at some point, once you get the specifics, you can go off a little bit. The spirit has to be there, but some of the nuance, you can swap characters. You can mold characters into one character to make it easier to go through. Uh, it's a better, easier narrative to follow. Once you get that done, as long as you do it well and it's entertaining, that's like we said when we did our rating episode, is it entertaining at all? Yes. Well, then that's five out of ten right there. Everything else is gravy, you know? If you could do that, if you could get the essence of the story, get it well done, make it entertaining, you've succeeded. They're not all going to be Jurassic Park where they just go completely gangbusters. They're not all going to be Harry Potter. But if you can make a good translation and it's entertaining, and the spirit of the book exists on screen, you've done it. Or you've screwed it up if you haven't met those criteria. Well, yeah, sometimes you run into that too. But it does then open up the door, though, to maybe something to read. Or if you realize, hey, this is a movie? Maybe I can check this out too. Like, I enjoy more and more being surprised by when I hear, wait a minute, that movie was based off of a book? Maybe I should read that book and check that out, see what see what's there, or see what this was based off of. Go back to the you source material. Yeah, you never know what doors that's going to open. Yeah. Uh, this was based on another earlier movie. This is a remake of another movie? What? This is based off a book? What? Go back and check out some of that source material. If I'm reading something online and I come across, wait, this happened pre- What happened to when? I'll go look it up, whether it's Wikipedia or something else, and just to get a glancing. And if it really gets me interested, I might really do a deep dive into it. And you never know what kind of doors that's going to open. So, And if you read the book by so-and-so, who's this Stephen King person? Maybe you open up other Stephen King ideas and find out where else they've gone and find out how they're all kind of connected and they all take place roughly in the same area and they reference one another and you find nuances that you never knew that you would enjoy. Maybe yeah. I like the Stanley Kubrick version of The Shining and you overlook the TV version that they did with Rebecca DeBornay. And I think that's a much better version. It was a mini. It was a two-part miniseries. I think they did in the late '90s, and it's better. I think. Or maybe it opens your mind to classical literature. You know, yeah. You go back to even the '50s version of of the tale of Moby Dick. You know, you might get yourself into some Melville then. Or there were some s- several movies that were made back in the '40s uh, based off of Hemingway novels a little bit. Maybe you get a chance to crack one of those open then as a result too based on seeing these movies, which they they didn't quite follow as closely. Like, to have and have not, big difference between the movie version where you have the first Bogey and Bacall, Bacall teaming up to what Hemingway's novel was actually about. You know, quite different when you go from one to the other. I think it'd be kind of funny to see a scandal movie, or book rather, made into a movie. Now, maybe they've done that already with Mommy Dearest, but I think like a political scandal or like the Princess Diana stories where she came out with her autobiography, it'd be funny if they made that into a movie where almost Diana breaks the fourth wall and speaks directly to the audience as she herself weaves in and out of the story. 
but stays connecting with the audience. And it sounds every, like a stage play. Almost. A bit. But wouldn't that be kind of interesting? You know, all the scandalous stories that came out about this and that. And here she is telling directly to the audience as she interacts with her own history and pulls herself out of that moment to connect with the, to connect with the audience. Almost while the scenery is changed behind her, the actors are replaced, and she weaves herself back in. That would be interesting if it was done, well, let's use a British term here, cheekily. Very cheeky, you know. Yes. It, would, it would have to be almost very strong, satirical, well written. I think Aaron Sorkin again might have to get cold. Quite into this a lot one. of cheek would be involved. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, it, yeah. But something like that could be interesting. I think some books just don't make it well onto screen unless, and that right there is your. You have to change the books to some degree. Maybe not the plot, but maybe the way that they're presented. Dave, you really need to write down some of these ideas that you come up with in the middle of the I don't, podcast. I, I orally you, dictate them into the podcast. You would have such a <laughs> list of possible movie ideas that you have come up with during the course of our time making this podcast together. <laughs> and they're free to pick off, by the way. Just give me a little you know, blurb in the credits or something. You know, we've done fix-it episodes before. I think we need a build-it episode where we both come up with our own ideas for movies at some point in the future oh whether it's based off a novel or not but that's our topic for today rick and nick talk flicks has been sponsored by the bemidji theater located on highway two just down from the airport show them some love give them some support right now um even though movies are really on hold during the pandemic Make sure you stop by if you don't feel comfortable going in to see either a classic movie or something new that's on screen um get a snack Get a snack. Absolutely. Go grab a snack, as Dave has been recommending. Dave's waiting to go see movies until it becomes safer to do so. But even still, supporting the snack bar, big, big proponent of making that happen. Aren't you kind of thirsty right now, kind of dry throat? Well, you could drive down Highway 2 and swing into the Bemidji Theater. Get a, uh, get a big soda. Forget about swinging into the gas stations for that. Go to and the then, theater and get a drink. And then dry your mouth out again with some popcorn. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, exactly. All right, well, whether it's reading a book or watching a movie or maybe doing both, I think we're ready to set sail on that after today's episode and to do more of that. Absolutely. Go read a book, then go see the movie based on that book, and then go play the pinball game based on that movie, based on the book, based on the podcast. Yeah, I'm trying to think of some of the best pinball games that are, or arcade games based off of movies. That's a whole Pirates other of the topic. Caribbean might be one of There's them. one. Yeah, that's a good one. Although based off a ride. <laughs> yep, yeah, it's true. You'd be amazed where the source is. Source material I love the movie. Ride. I think I'll go journey to Florida and go ride the ride. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies or in the novels.